Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Before we get going on this episode, I wanted to tell you about a new promotion that I'm doing with GoHunt.com Gear Shop. All you have to do to win a $1,000 GoHunt Gear Shop gift card, $1,000 they're giving away for the month of June. All you have to do is go to the GoHunt Gear Shop and order or buy anything on the website. For every dollar you spend, you get an entry into this drawing. Now keep in mind, this drawing is only going to be for 15 days in the month of June, and they're going to give away a $1,000 GoHunt Gear Shop gift card. So all you, have, you could buy something for a dollar or you could buy something for $3,000. Every dollar you spend goes to an entry. So every dollar, dollar for dollar entry into the Go Hunt Gear Shop giveaway. It's $1,000. Go Hunt Gear Shop has optics, binoculars, spotting scopes, rifle scopes, range finders, tripods, trekking poles, outdoor tools and knives, watches, game calls, hiking gear, backpacking gear, and much more. Guys, all you got to do is order. You can go on GoHunt.com and order right there on the gear shop. You can also call Cody Nelson, the glassing guru, the optics authority at 702-847-8747. That's extension two. So when you call Cody on the phone, you want to use the JSCOT19 promo code. And that JSCOT19 promo code is going to get you entered in the drawing. When you order off the website, you want to use the JSCOT19 promo code. And that's going to also get you entered into the drawing. I'm super pumped about this giveaway. Uh, I always like it when the J. Scott Outdoors podcast listeners have a chance to get something back. Uh, So go check it out, GoHunt.com. Guys, I also want to thank the other sponsors of this podcast, Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. That's K-U-I-U. You can find out more about Kuyu at Kuyu.com. That's K-U-I-U.com. That is all of the gear that I wear, all of the clothing, all of the backpacks, the stuff that I wear on all my hunts. Go to Kuyu.com to find out more. Also, Phonescope.com, use the JSCOT19 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount there at Phonescope. That's the digiscoping device I use on my iPhone 10 to gather all the photos and videos. Uh, also, Canyon Coolers, based out of Flagstaff, Arizona, use the JSCOT19 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount there with Canyon Coolers. And then last but not least, Onyx Maps. If you use the JSCOT19 promo code, you're going to get a 20% discount at onxmaps.com. Onyx Maps is something I use every day, whether I'm hunting or fishing, to make sure I'm uh, in the right spot where I know where I stand. Also, I can delineate between public and private property. I can switch from satellite to uh, an aerial imagery to topo, and there's also a hybrid mode. There's also a breadcrumb feature. Uh, measuring tool uh, on X maps go check it out use the jscott19 promo code and you're going to save 20 percent discount guys i want to thank you for supporting this podcast now let's get right to the show welcome to the jscott outdoors podcast today is going to be a fun episode i'm actually here in the roaring fork valley i've got will cardamone and trevor farman and I've actually been following Will on Instagram for years. Uh, I've been fishing in this valley, fish the Roaring Fork, and been following your stuff and know that you're a, a great guide here in the Roaring Fork Valley. And I've, it's always been on my radar to get you on a podcast. And so we set this up and you said my buddy Trevor would be a good one to talk to. And we're going to talk, you know, skiing, we're going to talk hunting, we're going to talk fishing. I'm excited to have you guys on and, and uh, just see where this thing goes. 
Awesome. Yeah. yeah thanks for having us. Yeah, for sure. Uh, why don't we start out? Um, I'll have you guys kind of talk a little bit about yourselves, where you came from, how you got to the valley, etc. I'll probably start with you, Will. Um, and uh, first, Cardamone. Uh, what what kind of nationality name? Where does that come from? It's uh, Italian. Okay. And um, yeah, my dad grew up in upstate New York. I think he, my mom went to Cornell, and so... Ivy he, League. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, both kind of, you know, my mom studied uh, environmental studies, and uh, she was actually born here in the Valley in Aspen. So you have a, you have a pretty deep connection then here in Aspen. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, my grandma moved here when she was maybe late teens or early 20s. And, uh, so she saw Aspen completely developed then just right in front of her eyes. Oh yeah. Yeah. They, uh, they did a lot to preserve kind of the wild places around here, which is really cool. Cause seeing the way the development is going now, it's, it's nice to know that there's these parcels out there that won't be touched. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really cool. I will dive into it a little bit more. Uh, so were you born here in the Valley? I was, yeah. Aspen Valley hospital. March 1985. Did you go to Aspen High then? I did. Okay, yes. so I mean, you're you're from Aspen. That's where you're from. That's where you live right now. Yes. Yeah. And um, we'll get into it, but you're an avid skier, avid hunter, avid fisherman. Yeah, everything that comes with the place. Yeah, that's <laughs> cool. You're, you're living the dream, man. That's <laughs> awesome. And Trevor, uh, where are you from? How did you get to this valley? I grew up back east in uh, northwestern Connecticut and New Hampshire. And then I came out here for college. And um, where'd you go? I went to Colorado College. Okay. And uh, here in the valley? No, it's in Colorado Springs. And I used to hitchhike over here from there and uh, hang out with these guys when they were in high school and in college. And uh, that's how I got to know all these guys. So coming from back east and coming out west, quote, you know, and especially coming to this valley and then hanging with these guys in Aspen and stuff, you know. What was what was it like? I mean, was it, it just unbelievable to be out here in the West and be able to ski and do all the stuff you like to do? Yeah, so I grew up pretty rural back east and um, always wanted to come out here and made that my choice to come out to college. And once I got out here, I was like, you know, this is the place for me. I ended up leaving for a while. I spent some time in Montana and a little in uh, New Zealand and then um, came back out and been here since. That's awesome. Uh, I know we've got some New Zealand stories. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick your brain a little bit on that. Will, in talking about the year that we just had as far as um, the snow and the snowpack and the amazing moisture that we had, I mean, I've heard people say it's 175% of normal. I've heard people say it's 300. I've heard people say it's 600. I don't know how you can even measure 600% of normal, but what is the real scoop as far as, you know, is it just a little above average aspen type year or is it truly a, a, a remarkable year as far as snowfall um as far as snowfall it was it was definitely remarkable um the reason they're calling for such high percentages is because we had such a wet cold spring through may even you know it was snowing through most of may and so none of that snow melted you know and somewhat normal years you're going to get more warming in may and that snow is going to melt and you're going to have more of a you know normal runoff mm -hmm. um 
this year, yeah, it stayed cold and all that snow stayed in the high country. And so it's always hard to tell, you know, it could go really hot all of a sudden and that snow could all melt and we could have a huge runoff, a quick peak, and then it just drops down. Or if it stays cool, you know, it's like a slower gradual peak and then a slower gradual decline with the river. So as far as the actual snowfall in, let's say, you know, December, January, February, March. I mean, I know around here, March and April are big snow months. What you're saying is, yes, it was a big snowfall year, but since it's been still snowing and still so cold, it's actually the reason you're getting those huge 300% of normal. It's because of normally it's already gotten warm this time of year. Snow's already melting. What they're talking about is what's left up there, correct? Exactly, yeah. They're talking about the, the certain day and they're basing it off of, you know, 20 years. And on that day, how much snow is left in the high country. Gotcha. And so they have all these measuring stations. And right now, because of that cold spring there, it's pretty high. So I got here about May 15th. And I mean, I can attest to the fact that, you know, I didn't even hardly start wearing shorts till about a week ago. I mean, it was <laughs> it, for an Arizona guy coming here. I mean, it was cold. I mean, I, it was cold yeah. and guys were still up skiing. I just went through Independence Pass a couple of days ago. And I mean, there's cars everywhere. People still skiing like crazy up there, um, up in the high country. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of skiing still to be had and, um, I'm kind of ready for summer though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about growing up, uh, here in the Valley. I kind of want to pick into that, uh, growing up in Aspen, going to Aspen high, um, and as a kid growing up in the Valley, being able to hunt fish, ski, was there one thing that you enjoyed doing? Like, this is my main thing. And then the rest kind of fell in, or is it just like seasonal? Like I love this when it's this season and I love this one, you know, how does that work with you? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say it's very seasonal, you know, when, when you hit April and you've been skiing all year, you're like, I'm, I'm really ready to go hit the river. I can't wait for those warm days and mm -hmm. casting dry flies. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess hunting has kind of been always just at first it was kind of in the background for me, you know, like my dad did it all the time and I would love the anticipation waiting for him to come home, you know, just to see what would happen from a hunt. Like, yeah. Exactly. Like waiting for him to see if he got something. Yeah. Or... And we'd like, show me your hands yeah see if there's blood there yeah. <laughs> but it's I th yeah it's been very seasonal I think that's become more apparent um you know as, as I've gotten older is that I love everything and when it starts to I guess maybe stagnate you know a little bit and you're getting kind of tired of it the next activity rolls along and it's just perfect timing yeah I mean I I tell people a lot when they ask me they're like how do you not get burned out on what you do and I I said well the way I look at it, it's, it's, you know, elk season, it's deer season, it's turkey season, it's skiing time, it's fishing time. When you're d tired of fishing, it's elk season. Like, you know, it's perfect to be able to transition into that. Trevor, have you had some of that, um, you know, coming from back east and going to school and then, you know, being a part of the mountain lifestyle and what have you, do you feel yourself, you know, looking forward to each season? Yeah, it's like Will said, as soon as you're kind of getting bored with whatever you're doing, something fun is right on the horizon and and everything's just as fun as the last thing yeah how did you two meet 
we met through a mutual friend of ours, um, buddy Tammy, and um, so I've known Will since since high school. Okay. And uh, we've been hanging out ever since. Was he a savage uh, snow skier when you met him? Always has been. Yeah. Always has been. <laughs> yeah. So how old are you now, Will? Uh, thirty-four. Thirty-four. Yep. So being thirty-four, have you noticed? Are you know, as you're, are you just as good a skier as you've ever been? Are you better? Are you, you know, is there things that you can't do, or do you feel like you're still, you know, skiing everything you could? Um, I'm definitely smarter. <laughs> I definitely. So you pick your I've, pick your battles a little bit. Exactly, yeah. and I did. I mean, I spent ten years as a professional skier and got to travel the world and ski in amazing places. And definitely, it's hard. I don't know. It's hard to say, but I think I would appreciate it more now because I was kind of so in it mm-hmm. back then. It was just kind of like what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But now that I look back on those experiences, I'm I'm very grateful and um, yeah, I kind of I never like it was never like a way to make money or you did it because you love it exactly. And I got to you know I got these trips paid for, so I was able to see the world through skiing. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, kind of like at the end of my skiing career, whatever professional skiing career. Um, I started lining up trips more so I could fish during the trip than Mm -hmm. (laughs) than actual ski. So I'd like, you know, try to go to these places where I could ski and fish. Growing up in Aspen, I've always wanted to ask guys this question. I mean, when you grow up with the accessibility of the mountain and the great skiing that, you know, Aspen provides, do you think that there's some sense of some kids potentially take it for granted because it's just right there and it's like you know so easy i'm curious your thoughts on that yeah i think you definitely get jaded that's why it's always important to to leave and and, then realize what you got exactly and come back and that's why travel has been so important to me um you know i grew up with a lot of friends who didn't really even ski here and it to me it was always I was always kind of flabbergasted by it, but that's just, you know, coming from my point of view. But, um, yeah, I think even now, you know, if I spend too much time here, I'm kind of get jaded and I'm ready to get out and see something new. And that always, you know, bring it back to the seasonal thing that helps as well, because after an amazing season like this, you can, you know, turn the switch when it comes to springtime and then you're fishing. Sure. You say you travel all over the world um, and, and you're professional skier. I'm a, I'm a recreational skier. <laughs> way, way different. I've been skiing since I was two years old, but I'm nothing like what you are. I'm, I'm, it's like saying you're a golfer and, you know, there's all levels of... Were, were you into gates? Were you into downhill? Were you adventure? What, what was your passion? Moguls? What was, what was your deal? So I, I grew up... Um, ski racing and so i raced for aspen valley ski club here and that kind of built my you know foundation of skiing it makes you learn all the just basics technical stuff yeah exactly how to how to be a good skier Mm -hmm. um then i think it was right 
my maybe my freshman year of high school I had a ski coach that just was too intense at that point in time and I was like this isn't for me I'm gonna quit ski racing and I'm gonna go to free skiing and so my skiing career was basically based off of big mountain skiing and so I don't know if anybody would know Warren Miller or any of that kind of thing but just you know we would go to Alaska we'd go to like Cordova Alaska and some of those places yeah yeah exactly Haynes um and sometimes we'd go fly in with a ski plane camp out on the glacier and hike our lines and ski them or you know I spent time in Japan skiing the deepest powder ever and so it was it was basically just um yeah these adventure trips but that all kind of started with uh, big mountain ski competitions and so that's a like a platform where you can kind of gain sponsors and so if you do well in these big mountain ski competitions you can you know show your results to different companies and they'll sponsor you and then provide funding for for travel and film trips is that what you i mean you embarked in you you went the sponsor route and got sponsors and all that kind of stuff yeah exactly yeah that's awesome with that being said i know you know i have sponsors of the podcast so i know what it's like to deal with sponsors and and you know some most is very good but there's obviously (laughs) things that come with that um was there ever a time when there was things that you you know you were having to do for sponsors that you're you look back now and you maybe think you know I didn't enjoy that or I wish I would have done this different I mean is there anything or or did you have a relatively you know easy go with everything um at first yeah it was it was pretty easy cuz it was just you know via email and they wanted film segments and you'd get you know a a budget so you'd go work with different film companies. But then I think what kind of switched me was the oncoming of social media. And all these companies really wanted you to promote yourself right. through social media. And I've always been more of like a soft-spoken mm-hmm. person and had a hard time Puffing do your it, chest doing out. the check me out, look how rad I am mm-hmm. thing through social media and... It's funny because I saw a lot of a lot of guys who were really good at it and they continue to be really good at it, but at the same time there was some skiers out there that really were not great skiers, but they were really good at social media. Great promoters. Exactly. But there were guys that ski could ski circles around them. I think that's true in hunting, fishing, you know, you pick it. You I mean you pick whatever sport it is. I think there's lots of circumstances where there's guys that are fully sponsored and you see them here and here. And then there's a guy that, you know, maybe doesn't push him, push self promote. And everybody knows this guy can ski circles around this guy or, you know, whatever it is, hunt circles around this guy or fish circles around. And it, it does give, it is amazing how people in social media can be, you know, bigger than life. And then the reality is, there's a million people that are better yeah i mean it's just kind of a unique situation that we're in i think with social medias and i think it's in hunting it's in fishing it's in it's in i mean it's it's in in every world we live in now yeah (laughs) yeah trevor um 
So you meet Will in high school. You go away for a while. You spend some time in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. What did you do in New Zealand? I worked on a, a ranch down there. They call it a station. And it was sheep, deer, and cattle. And um, Which island? I was on the South Island okay. in Wanaka, okay. West Wanaka Station. So where is that? In re I've been to New Zealand. Where is it in relation to like Christchurch? Um, it's west of Christchurch. It's like by Queenstown. Okay. And um, I was actually, I went down there just to go fishing, to go trout fishing, because they have, you know, the best Incredible. site fishing for brown trout. And I was fishing one day, um, kind of camping on the edge of this guy's ranch. And I was, he came up. Kind of camping or camping on the guy? Camping on the edge of his ranch. <laughs> down there, it's a little It's a little, it's a little different, yeah. Yeah. And he came up to the gate with, like, a truck full of fence posts. And I, I was like, oh, open the gate for this guy. And he's like, do you want to work? And I, was, I had my rod in hand. I was ready to go fishing. I was like, for what? And he's like, ah, some dirty lamb. And I was like, dirty lamb? And he's like, yeah, I'll feed you. I was like, okay. So You're I ended speaking up, my language now. Yeah. <laughs> so I ended up working for him. And then he, uh, he put me up in an old Bedford bus, 25-foot Bedford bus on the ranch with a wood stove in it. And I lived in that thing for a year and worked on his ranch. And I uh, got the full New Zealand experience with, with him. So this ranch... Um have moving water that went through it as well that you could fish oh yeah yeah um we had ponds on the on the property and it was all in lake wanaka so it was like sight fishing for you know huge browns um you could just walk down from uh from the bus that i lived in and go fishing every day and then you had to, you had to go to work obviously yeah um but when i wasn't working i was fishing or going hunting or something that's awesome uh I've been to New Zealand. My wife and I actually went for our honeymoon. We spent two weeks there and just had an amazing experience. Um, Will, have you been to New Zealand? Fly, I have. Uh, fly fishing? Um, I did a little bit. I actually, I turned five in New Zealand. You did? Yeah. I went there with my parents. We spent two months there. Um, and it's kind of that point in my life where I just, you know, started having memories <laughs> yeah <laughs> you, know, so you like can faintly remember it. it yeah exactly and i remember doing a little bit of fly fishing but uh i was kind of more at the age where you know catching eels on on cane poles <laughs> yeah, and <it> stuff <laughs> way cooler <laughs> yeah yeah um trevor so sight fishing for big browns um tributaries of of the lake and actually fishing in the lake is that what you were kind of yeah, and then, and then, you know, there's a couple really good backcountry rivers that were right by me, and I would just take my dog and go on, like, a two- or three-day little excursion, and, and down there it's different. It's like you might hike a mile in between fish, and you get a shot, one, two shots at a fish, and he spooks. So that that's kind of like the hunting aspect of it where it's like it's – you either you do it or you don't yeah and you either shots get blow. a shot and catch them or you don't yeah and if it pays off it's the biggest fish you've ever caught and if not hike another mile and try to find the next one you know when people ask me about going to new zealand i've only been one time and that's what i tell them that's so different than here is the the density of fish comparison it's not even i mean it's not even a comparison like you said you walk a mile and maybe see one or two feet yeah. of fish you walk another mile to drive that point home, one of the first, we did nine days of, of guided fly fishing down there. And one of the days, one of the very first days we went and with the guide and we kind of were driving and he, 
he starts shaking his head and I'm like, what's the matter? He says, there's a guy in front of us. Yeah, then you're screwed. And I said, that, that's no big deal. That's It's, it's okay. Yep. He's like, no, we we got to go to a different river. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, holy smokes, you show up down here at Carbondale with the put-in and there's, you know, there's 25 <laughs> trucks or more, you yeah. know. Um, but when you have that density of fish that's so low and fish that are spooky and you get a couple shots if you're lucky at those fish. But like you said, they're amazing fish. I mean, it's not uncommon to catch eight or ten pound browns. Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. It's uh, it's truly like hunting. Like you're crawling around on your belly and spotting them. Yeah, exactly. It's all sight fishing. I mean, I would never would just like fish a riffle down there. Yeah. Just like nymphing. It's all. I you mean, go and spot the fish you want to catch. Yeah, you're using super long leaders and tippets, super fine six, seven X. Yeah. For these huge fish, and you get you know one or two shots with them. No indicators. You're just looking to see that little white flash of his yeah. mouth turn to take take your uh your nymph or whatever and it's it's like nothing else in the world for sure so since you've done that did it take you a while when you went other places because of the size of fish there did it almost was that almost like a pinnacle where you're like man i don't enjoy catching 12 inch fish anymore or first of all it took me a while to learn how to catch fish down there because you know coming from the states where you get rivers like here and there's just a ton of fish and you're blind fishing everything and there it's a totally different story and it's like like i said you know one shot at a fish so yeah it took me you know a month or two to start catching fish and then once you figure it out you're like okay i got this dialed in a little bit but i mean every day you get schooled and learn something every single day one thing i noticed is when you would actually hook a fish there they go ballistic i yeah. mean they absolutely take off they're jumping. They're trying. They are absolutely trying to get away from you. Yeah, I've I mean, swam like nothing across I've rivers ever seen. with my rod above my head to my neck in the water, like yeah. <laughs> trying to land something, and you end up a quarter mile downstream in some pocket, and you can finally land them or something. It's crazy. One thing I picked up too is the guides there. Um, New Zealanders don't talk inches. They don't say, "Oh, I caught a no, twenty it's pounds." It's pounds. Yeah. They have the little the, yeah. w- the nets with the scales Every on them. I'm like, "What are you doing?" Little... He's like, "Oh, it's about a six pounder." I'm like, yeah. "That's the biggest fish I've ever seen." You tell That's somebody a... down there you caught a twenty incher, and they're like, "What?" Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. Doesn't <laughs> make any sense. Um, guys, you guys like to archery elk hunt together, uh, and you do a fair amount of fishing together. Um, will you guide for one of the shops here in town, Taylor Creek Fly Shop uh, in Basalt? Mm-hmm. Uh, talk a little bit about when you started for them, how long you've been with them, and, and you know, kind of how your guiding do- goes in the summer. Um, I guess I, I first started guiding about 12 or 13 years ago in the Valley. I started with a... Um, with the outfit up in Aspen, Aspen Fly Fishing, and... Uh, great guy chris lemons runs it he kind of just you know let me in as a youngster and showed me the ropes you'd have been what like 20 yeah 22 maybe um and then just you know ended up throughout the years kind of working for a bunch of different outfitters in the valley um landed at, at taylor creek and they just have you know such awesome return clientele um very consistent work through the summer so i don't have to worry really worry about 
you know, keeping in contact with clients. You, you know, just I'm, know you're going to be booked. Yeah, I'm going to be booked. And what do you, what rivers, talk about the valley a little bit um, for people that maybe aren't familiar with the Roaring Fork Valley. Talk about kind of the waters, the different rivers and what have you uh, fishing around here. So we have within, I'd say, 30 to 40 minutes of the shop, we have four different rivers that we fish. Uh, the frying pan, really well-known tailwater. Uh, the Roaring Fork, Freestone, beautiful river. Uh, we fish the Colorado down by Glenwood. Mm -hmm. And then we fish the Crystal as well. Um, the frying pan is, it's a very technical river. Um, I think a lot, I've heard a lot of people call this valley kind of like the grad school of fly fishing just because of how technical it can be. You know, you're fishing size... 20 to 22 tiny shiny 6x 7x a lot of the time when it's low and clear um, especially on the frying pan the frying pan is definitely kind of our go-to wade river especially with you know clientele that might not have the mobility mm -hmm. that other people have you know it's really easy access lots of fish per mile too lots of fish yeah yeah um, and lots of hatches lots of hatches less now than before i think um it might be coming back in a little bit but there was a few winters where um they kept the river so low that we got a lot of anchor ice which is the ice that builds up from the bottom okay and it killed a lot of the the larva okay and so there was a few years there where it was pretty sporadic kind of weird hatches um but over the last I don't know, maybe two years, those hatches have kind of started to come back. And especially this year with the amount of snow that we had, we're going to be able to push a lot of water through there and should help with the health of the river. I noticed right now, um, I think the level's at 450, and they might have kicked it up to five or 600 for a day or two, but it, it's high. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. flush, what do you feel like as far as the health of the river, that flush does for the river? It's really important. Yeah, definitely very important. There's this moss up there that grows called didymo, and it's kind of like, it looks like snot. It's like this white, weird stuff. And um, without that flush in the spring, like last year, we had one of the worst snow years I've seen, and that didymo started really early. And by the end of the summer, it was, you know, every other cast, you're like pulling in these size 20 flies and picking this moss off of it and just makes it very tedious. But, uh, with that flush, you know, it really cleans the river out, allows the rocks to become, you know, bare again and those bugs to really thrive. And then it takes a lot longer for that, that invasive stuff to, to grow back. So this, the high water and flushing, it's good for it washing the river out. Uh, so the frying pan, it's, it's about a 14-mile stretch from the confluence of uh, Roaring Fork up to the dam, roughly? Yeah, yeah, about, yeah. And about it's 12, it's got yep. fish from top to bottom. I mean, mm -hmm. everybody's heard of the upper flats and the toilet bowl and all the yeah. stuff right below, but there's some amazing parts of the river as well that are, you, you know, the lo you guys know about, but it yep. seems like it doesn't get talked about as much. Yeah, you fish that upper three miles a lot. Um because just the, you know, the amount of fish, you can bring a five-year-old up there and set him in the river and catch, you know, 10, 10-inch 10 browns mm -hmm. within an hour and 
really just, you know, sparks that, that love of fishing in, in the younger generation. But as you move down the river, it starts to fish more like a freestone. Mm-hmm. You get more of those, especially like the lower two miles before it hits the roaring fork, you're going to get good hopper fishing. You know, if, if you're working those hatches, you know, they naturally move up the river. And so if you want to start lower, it's great, really good pocket water and, and fun. If you're, if you're willing to, you know, do, do a little extra work and, yeah. and move a lot. So that's the frying pan, and then there's three others. So then it goes into the Roaring Fork. Yeah, so it hits the Roaring Fork and Basalt. Personally, I'd, I'd say my favorite river in the valley is the Roaring Fork. Um, Mine too. It definitely, the fish just, you know, haven't seen as much pressure. They fight a little harder. It just seems a little bit more wild. Yeah. It's me. a beautiful freestone river. Isn't yeah, it? amazing. The rocks are just so colorful. Every, every color of rock, and it's like waiting on you know, greased up bowling balls the whole time. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, that's, I mean, from Aspen to Glenwood is about 45 miles. So you have that amount of just amazing water. And then we float from Carbondale. Well, we float the upper stuff too, but that's m- mainly just raft water. Um, we float from Carbondale down in drift boats and just really kind of like high paced, fun fishing. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, if there's a good hatch going on or whatnot, you're just hitting little pockets and just really working it hard. Um, Then you get down to the Colorado. Colorado is an amazing fishery when it's it's in. It it blows out a lot more than the fork or the pan, obviously. But, um, yeah, Colorado, just a bigger river, bigger fish. And... uh, Great fall streamer fishing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. (laughs) You know, the thing that's interesting about the Colorado, you know, you mentioned 45 miles from Aspen down to, on the Roaring Fork, down to Glenwood. But then you add in the Colorado, I mean, basically from Glenwood down, but you still have fishing above, Mm -hmm. you know, up to Bear Ranch, you know, some of that stuff. But, I mean, you've got another, what, 30, 40 miles all the way down past Rifle. Yeah. I mean... There's 80-some miles right there of pretty amazing fishing. Really good fishing, yeah. And then, you know, if you're a carp junkie, too, a lot of these guys are getting into that carp fishing. White and fish. You can get down there, and you know, in midsummer when it's hot out, you pull into these old oxbow lakes and try to catch some carp, and you can, you know, hit trout and carp in the same day. That's pretty <laughs> sweet. And then the crystal is one that, from my perspective, it doesn't, you don't hear a lot about the crystal. What's your thoughts? I've only recently started fishing the crystal. Um, I think I fished it up high when I was young because I basically like my introduction to fly fishing was high lakes and high creeks. You know, we used to go chase brookies and go chase cutthroats in the high lakes. But um, the places where I guide on the crystal, you know, it's more of like a, we catch a lot of whitefish. Mm-hmm. Um there's definitely some really big browns in there and some really big rainbows, but it, it, there's this creek that comes in from Coal Basin, called Coal Creek, I think. And, uh, you know, when it rains a little bit, it just it blows, just blows out. Yeah. And so you can go in there when it's still pretty milky and catch a bunch of whitefish, which is fun for, you know, a family or something. But Just catching fish. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And they fight hard, man. I mean, oh, yeah. there's all this kind of 
hate towards whitefish. I feel like, <laughs> and like they save my day sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> I mean they they pull. I mean that's what I say. Don't don't knock them. And yeah, I mean and they'll pull a rod. I and mean, they're na- they're native fish. So yeah, yeah they're supposed know? to be here. <laughs> yeah, with the year we're having with this snowpack that you talked about with the skiing, you know the quote unquote late runoff. What's your thoughts on just the general valley conditions, the river? You know, the valley's known for the big green dray catch. You think it's going to be later? Do you think they're, you know, it's all water temperature, right? What's what's going to happen? What are you predicting? Um, I think it's, I mean, I think it's just turning into more of a normal year, really. Um, the dray catch, like, for example, last year we had really bad snow year. The dray catch was super sporadic because the water temperature throughout the entire river hit the right temp and all of a sudden there's just bugs popping like you know from glenwood to aspen down to rifle like all at the same time right and so on a normal year you know that water level hits incrementally as you go up and you get like amazing hatches day to day and they just move slowly up the river so personally i think this is going to be a better year for hatches like that yeah. Instead of, yeah, just the random sporadic where you're like mid-May and you're like, oh, there's a trick. Yeah. <laughs> what the heck's going on? July. Yeah. <laughs> so you think with the water temperature, with more water, the water's going to stay colder. Therefore, it's not just going to blow up all over. It's going to kind of progression up the valley. It typically starts down by Newcastle, Silt mm-hmm. Newcastle, right? Yeah. And then just slowly works its way up. Slowly works up, yeah. And then it forks and goes up the Roaring Fork. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I always find so interesting is it goes on up the Roaring Fork, and then the Green Drakes will be all the way at Aspen and then gone. And then all of a sudden at the frying pan, like in sep, right? Like yeah, in early August, September, September, it's September, like it's blowing up yeah. green drakes on the frying pan. That's yeah. a water temperature issue, right? You think? or I mean, it's hard to say because that water temperature up there stays the same. I mean, I think it is because the, you know, the lower you get down the pan, that water has time to warm up. And so those bugs move up. But I think it's just more of a timing thing up there. You know, they're finally like, okay. Let's do it. Let's do it. And you get those really big drakes up there. And uh, I think, you know, they've been in the larva stage for so long, they're finally just like, okay. I want to be an adult. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> those leaves look nice. Let's get out of the water and check them out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Trevor, what is there one river that you like uh, better than others? I like the fork. Yeah, and floating it. Floating That's the fork. That's my favorite thing to do, probably. Yeah. I mean, it's always fun to go wade on the frying pan, but uh, floating on the fork is there's nothing better than spending a full Saturday on there or a, a night after work, and you're getting off the river in the dark, and you just had like the most amazing caddis or green drake, where yeah. just like you're throwing your fly out there in the dark and just like looking for a movement and listening for the yeah, exactly. <laughs> pull your rod back and every every once in a while there's something on there yeah (laughs) so what do you guys think as far as drake's um you know with everything you know now i mean obviously it could get cold it could get hot you know there's a lot of variables i mean do you still think it's going to be kind of a beginning of july july 4th drake's you know kind of starting on colorado or do you think this year because of high water it might be later than fourth of july i think it'll be a little bit later this year okay it's a um, lot of water. It's yeah. a lot of water. And, you know, looking out the door right now, it's cloudy. So yeah. 
and it's and it's been like in low 70s i mean normal yeah. year it'd be almost 80 by now mm-hmm. yeah um yeah i think it'll be pushed back a little bit but i think as soon you know we'll hit that peak and it's going to drop and it'll be hot and as soon as, th- as that happens it's just going to be it's going to be go time yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh you had mentioned high country lakes there's I mean, there's more lakes around here than you can count. There's some amazing cutthroat trout fishing in the high country lakes, and you can pretty much pick anywhere in the valley and any lake. They pretty much all have cutthroat trout, right? Yeah, lots of, well, yeah, cutthroats and brookies. Brookies, yeah, okay. depends. But and a lot of them have cutthroats. A yeah. lot of them are still snowed in, right? I mean, oh, yeah, they're probably iced over yeah. still. and Yeah. It's going to be a late high high lake season. Mm-hmm. Trevor, you had mentioned uh, before we went on the podcast, You, we talked on the podcast about you spending time in New Zealand, yep. but you mentioned a story about uh, what you did with the red deer. Yeah, the red stag. So we had quite a few of them on our ranch, and we would just kind of let them go wild, and you would muster them in with a helicopter to kind of hedge them and yeah yeah i mean they're so fast that you can't really use dogs and they they could hurt a dog if a dog got too close so you're on like a dirt bike with some dogs and a helicopter and um you'd bring them all down into the pens and then um the vet would come in and he'd have this long pole with a trank dart on it and he would give them a jab in the neck and they'd get kind of loopy (laughs) and and kind of get down on their lie down and then he'd come in and sedate them and you'd go in there with uh, a tourniquet while they're in velvet and tie that tourniquet around the base of their antlers and take a hacksaw and cut cut off their antlers. Right at the base. Right at the base. And um, it doesn't hurt the deer or anything. And then that goes straight into the freezer. And then uh, it gets shipped over to, to China as an aphrodisiac um, for like 80 bucks a kilo is what it was when I was there. So Unreal. It was like velvet gold sounds like a western deal or yeah. just, a, just a rodeo it's a different kind of country down there people are a different breed of people for sure yeah now correct me if i'm wrong but a lot of the ranches and concessions or what have you down there because the government i believe doesn't want red stags and chamois and tar and some of that stuff i think they got to where they're fencing a lot of the properties yeah uh, and most most places in New Zealand are fenced because they're trying to at least keep those animals from just getting shot, right? Well, yeah, and every mammal, the only native mammals to New Zealand are bats and seals. So every type of game animal or anything like that is is an introduced animal. So it's a constant struggle for them to try to manage those population sizes. And, um, I mean, yeah, there's you can go into areas where there's just there's moose in there there's red stag there's hogs really there's all kinds of stuff i remember when i was there they had big signs up that they were um, poisoning possums i think yeah we used to shoot a lot of them on the ranch and you could get uh, money for their pelts and they would they'll mix in possum fur with merino wool and it makes like the best socks the best sweaters i would say go get yourself a merino possum pair of socks it's pretty nice so possums must have come over on ships and then they just went crazy introduced it's all like that kind of stuff where they brought in the possums to take care of something, and then they ended up eating all the native bird eggs, and then it became a huge problem. Same thing with rabbits. Those were introduced. Um, we used to go out at night and 
just drive around in a pickup truck and like the farmer would give you like five bucks for every rabbit you shot or something <laughs> like that and these are my younger days yeah <laughs> you guys both like to hunt um talk about kind of your love for hunting and what you guys each one of you what you what your passion is for hunting as far as what animal what season what you know what is your favorite if you had to pick one um i'm an archery elk guy <laughs> love to hear him bugle <laughs> yeah the uh, there's nothing like having a bull screaming at you from 30 yards away um my dad was a big mule here mule deer hunter growing up and uh he'd always come home with these big bucks and i think the only bull he shot when i was little might have been like a little raghorn four or something and so I, uh, you know, I was always into hunting since I, you know, turned 12 and was able to go big game hunting. And then I had a couple buddies that really, you know, I think it was probably when I got into college um, that just kind of showed me archery elk hunting and, and what that was all about and just how exciting it was during September. And especially, I mean, I think the biggest part is being in the mountains in September is especially around here in Colorado. It's the most beautiful time of year. And I try to spend as many days as possible during that 30 day season out in the woods, sleeping under the stars. Um, and yeah, so I've definitely become an elk junkie, you know, I'll draw mule deer archery tags and I'll be like, Oh, well I got the tag in my pocket. If I, you know, see one and have have a go at it, I'll go do it. But, I always put all my effort into the elk and totally forget about that deer tag. <laughs> Growing up here, um, have you noticed the bulls bugling more or less? Have you noticed any change in the elk? Is it is it as good as it used to be? Is it you know is it one of those things where oh you should have seen it twenty years ago or you know where are we at? I think when I when I started, I think I was probably twenty two, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I wasn't getting into the elk as much, but then maybe four or five years later, I kind of had a better hold on it. I think I shot my first bull with my bow. Yeah, probably like four years in to hunting with a bow. So, I mean, you had a lot of trial and error. Yeah. Like, yeah. how the heck do I get this done? A lot of like getting within, you know, 50 yards and then being like, how do I close that, <laughs> that yeah. next 20 yards? Um, I'd say once I kind of got the idea of how to call and, you know, how to be in the right place at the right time, it was amazing. I had multiple encounters with bulls that were, you know, screaming at me from five yards away and just didn't know how to get a shot off. I think that's within, what hooked you. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was a, a period where I couldn't think about anything else and I'm kind of still in that period right now but that's awesome now you shoot traditional archery right yeah yeah and what would you say like what's your effective range i like to shoot 20 yards or less okay if uh if i'm feeling really good and it's a clean you know broadside shot at 25 or 30 yards i'll take it but i've had some mishaps where you know stuff went wrong and i, I just don't want to ever feel like that again so yeah 
Now, around here, it's over-the-counter archery elk mm -hmm. where you can shoot a bull or a cow. Yep. When you go out, um, are you at a point where you try and shoot bull, and if a cow gives you a shot, or are you the type that whatever, either one gives you a shot, you're going to shoot, or how does it, you know, does it change from year to year? Where, where are you at with that? I tend to just go for a bull. Okay. Um, I've had years where I've... You know, halfway through the season, I've shot a bull, and I'll go and, and buy an over-the-counter cow tag for mm -hmm. archery. And okay. so I can go, still go out with my friends, call, and, you know, if the situation presents itself, I can take a cow. Um, I've definitely eaten tag soup multiple times when I've had cows in front of me pretty close, but I always kind of back myself up with a rifle cow tag just to fill the freezer after that if if I don't make it happen. And your first bull that you shot, tell me about it. So I was solo. Uh, my buddy lived at the, at the bottom of this hillside, and he'd keep his windows open at night. And there's kind of like this preserve, but there's like some sneaks in. Um, and they'd come down at night, and so he'd know when the elk were in this zone. And so I think he had shot a bull already, but he was like, all right, go, uh, they're in there, go check it out. And booked up the hillside. I remember getting up there and just like sitting down and waiting. And this other hunter came up and I was like, I'm here already, dude. Yeah. <laughs> and got up into this Aspen bench called and this bull was, was good, definitely going off like right on the hillside above me. And it was funny because there's all these, there's this group of hunters in the valley that set up all these tree stands, just like permanent tree stands. Just leave them. Yeah, just like two by fours and whatnot. And I'm standing under this tree stand and the bull comes in just right around this tree. And he like tucked his head like around, but I didn't know at the time, but I thought he was fully broadside, took the shot. Turned out he was quartering towards me a little bit. Spent the whole night just like hands and knees looking for blood. Couldn't figure it out. Was like fully heartbroken. And do you feel like you made a good shot? Yeah, I, okay. I felt like you know I saw it tucked like you know right behind the shoulder, but it was just that angle mm -hmm. where one lung, you know, they can go forever. Oh, yeah. Called my buddy. He's like, "Well, let's go up and look for it." And uh, Went up and just gritted the whole area, and I'm like, you know, 300 yards this way, and I hear him just yell, like, oh, there it is. <laughs> and this was the, actually the next afternoon. So How far had he gone? He went 100 yards, 200 yards maybe, 150, yeah, not that far. But in thick stuff, it's in tough. In thick stuff, it? yeah, and walked up on it, and we're like, well, you know, he's probably – not going to be good eating so let's at least open him up and make it so he can you know the animals can come get him and we open him up and meat was all good good for you took the whole bull home and yeah it was amazing what what was the bull was it it was just a little five point to, in in colorado you have to have a five inch eye guard or a four point on one side is that right yeah four points or a six inch eye guard six inch eye six guard. inch okay. brow tine yeah awesome yep. So, I mean, now you've got your first bull and you're just like hooked. 
yeah, it was, I mean, it was more of a relief at that point. It like, was I've like, done it. It was like, I've done it, but I want to do it better. Yeah. You know, I'm going to focus way harder. I'm going to make it so hopefully this never happens again. That's awesome. But as hunters, we know that. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's part of hunting. Yeah. And a couple years ago, you got your personal best at like a 340 bowl around here. Mm -hmm. You know, that's an amazing feat. Yeah. How did that feel? Oh, man, it was the best hunt of my life, for sure. Trevor was yeah. there with me. and um, Super, yeah, super uh, gnarly spots. Super gnarly, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Did a, he come a great screaming in? or No, he actually – so we're walking up the uh, – it's kind of like this tight little really steep valley and we're walking up the dark timber side the other side's all oak and aspen and uh we're seeing elk on the other side and they're they usually go off it's this really special little pocket where like i keep it in my back pocket for those times when like the other elk kind of shut up it's tough like, yeah exactly and uh we're walking up the dark timber side and this I'd been like making all these estrus cow calls and just kind of like trying to start things up because nobody was talking. And all of a sudden this bull just like kind of walks out just slowly across the hillside. I'm like, Trevor, you got to check this thing out, dude. You don't see bulls like this around here that often. And so yeah. we're like watching him. And I was just like taking in the moment. Just like, how far is he roughly? Probably 400 yards. But all the way across. So you're just drooling looking at this thing. Yeah, just like, oh, man, that thing is awesome. And, like, he must just be going to get water or something because yeah. he's, like, going to the creek. Sure enough, the thing keeps coming all the way around. And we, like, moved in a little closer to him. And he comes in, and he's making those little bull chirps. Mm -hmm. You're like, meow, mm -hmm. meow. And <laughs> Trevor's out in front of me a little ways, and thing kind of like comes up above us and i'm like it's a calf you know he sounds like a calf mm -hmm. and he's like no dude it's the bull <laughs> <laughs> so i'm like all right like stay right here and he ends up like crossing just above us and like coming back down around and came down to wind us came down to wind us and i had this tree that had recently fallen and so I had all the needles on it still just like perfect cover mm -hmm. and it comes down and it's just like walking sniffing the ground and just chirping and uh comes right into view is like 20 yards yeah as max. soon as he crossed our path he smelled it he picked his head up mm -hmm. up and i was just looked right away and whack mm -hmm. hammered him hammered him right through the heart yeah good for you so you and got to see the whole thing Trevor? i got it all on a iphone video so. that's awesome <laughs> that's that's, cool. so you guys are super stoked yeah, yeah. not like i've had experiences where you know i've one lunged one and you know tracked it too early and so we waited i think two and a half yeah three hours i knew you know we reviewed the video and looked knew where like he a good went. shot and came back and he was piled up like 100 yards away mm -hmm. that's awesome that's yeah. awesome what about your <clears throat> your favorite hunt is it archery elk too yeah for sure and where are you in your progression of your archery elk hunting? You hunt with a compound, right? Yep. Okay. Um, where are you in your in your story of archery elk hunting? Will's kind of taught me all that I know because I got back here kind of late, mm -hmm. and I grew up back east, you know, shooting whitetails and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but like we said, got hooked right away, 
spent a lot of nights by myself, just kind of learning, looking for elk, getting getting skunked, getting in range or something, seeing something, hearing something. And then um, had a hunt with Will where really similar kind of situation, same kind of spot. And um, he was calling for me. And um, he came in. We had I had kind of set up wrong, the wrong triangle. And he knew something was off. And he booked um, but didn't see me. And then we kind of met up again, regrouped, came up with a, a different game plan. And then uh, the second time in, he was still interested. He came back and... Um, it was perfect. He was like 10 yards. Smoked him. Yep. Smoked him right through the heart. And it was, uh, it was like right by where Will shot his bull. That's like cool. Probably like yeah, a couple hundred yards. With, it died within 50 yards of where my yeah. bull died. Well, that's yeah. awesome. Around here, when do you guys, when is the best bugling, would you say? Like if you had to pick a, you know, four or five day window every year, when is that the best? I feel like so it depends on where you are too. Say like the twentieth through the twenty fifth. Yeah, it's so pretty late in the season. Yeah, yeah. There, well, there's like two pockets of it. There's like the pre, like they go off pretty good, like maybe like the tenth, or like maybe even a little bit earlier than that. But then they realize that the cows aren't ready. You mm-hmm. know, all the bulls are trying to like figure their their stuff out and get the pecking order right, and then and then they're like, oh well, the ladies aren't ready for us yeah. yet, and then they quiet down. There's this probably like you know 10 day lull and then it hits that estrus and it just goes off game on yeah in this valley a lot of the units it's over the counter archery elk right Mm -hmm. and there are some limited entry units but they're kind of further away this valley's primarily over the counter yeah i mean you can go lots we talk about 85 miles of river i mean you start talking about areas you can go around here and in most places in colorado you could OTC here, or you could drive three hours over by wherever and OTC over there as well. Yeah. I mean, throughout the whole yeah. season, you can go anywhere in the over-the-counter areas. Exactly, yeah. Do you guys find yourself kind of chasing and going around, or do you kind of have your pockets locally that you just kind of stay close to home? Yeah, we pretty much stay close to home. Yeah. Now, are you still guiding fishermen at that point, or do you try and take September where you can archery elk hunt? Yeah, I'm I'm still guiding here and there. You know, I'll go hunt for three days and then work for two days and then back out. I've always told myself, like, I should probably work a little bit more during hunting season, but it never happens. <laughs> <laughs> and I like that about you. <laughs> um, Trevor, I didn't ask you what you do for a living. Uh, I'm in the construction industry, so I've done excavation, and now I'm like a landscape contractor, so... The fall is like our push time to get all these big projects done. And Aspen, before winter, yeah. And Aspen is like, you know, huge construction industry here. So it's it's tough to try to manage those deadlines with you know your hunting season. So yeah. it's a battle, but you turn into a bit of a weekend warrior, or you might get a day on either side of a weekend, but you just gotta sacrifice it, make it happen. Yeah, for sure. Will, I'm looking over here. You brought up big giant mule deer that you had shot um tell me about that thing it's a uh, uh, let me describe it to the listeners it's a big boxy frame buck real chocolate antler got extra points um just a whopper buck i mean big old eye guards tell me about it um yeah that was my third season rifle mule deer from two years ago my 
my banner year, I don't think I'll ever be able to top it. That was it. the 340 and that buck? Yeah. Two, in the same year? 235. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that that buck's getting, 235? Yeah. That thing's a giant. I knew it was over 200. That's a monster. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I had texts from him like, oh, check out this, check out this. Did you just die? Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh. Was he hard? He, his head was so big he couldn't walk through the door, huh? <laughs> So did you know the buck was there or tell me about it? No, I had no idea. I actually um, got done with archery season and my buddy had pulled the Grand Canyon raft trip permit with, it was like one of those leftover permits that somebody didn't hit. And uh, we had 10 days to pre- prepare for that. And we went and did the Grand for 18 days and I was like, well, I'm getting back right before my tag starts. So uh went out and decided to hunt with my cousin i hadn't hunted with him for a while he had a buck tag or no he had a he had a cow tag but i'm you know two miles away up on this glassing point with him and i think we sat there for 10 minutes and saw this buck just through like i've got this little like bushnell space master from like 1980 so you're kind of like doing one of these yeah and i'm like <laughs> i think it's a good one i'm like that's a buck for sure he's chasing that doe and so I had probably an hour left of light, so I busted down, drove down, and hiked about, got got in there, like, right before dark. Um, saw him through the aspen trees, still had no idea what kind of buck it was, and just had, like, a brief little window, and I took a shot. He runs away, and... Do you think you missed him? I thought I had hit him just kind of he like did that kind of weird jump thing but um went up there was snow on the ground and found his tracks no blood whatsoever and i actually backtracked where i'd shot and looked at the window and went and looked at the aspen tree and there sure enough there's a bullet hole like 10 feet up in the aspen tree and i'm like well oh well yeah you know i still have a whole season and the next day i was like well maybe there's got to be there's so many deer tracks in this area and so the rut was definitely just getting going and went back and hiked up the same place instead i came in a little bit higher and uh yeah he was he was like another ridge up and still on just that one doe um and still in some thick stuff i saw tines i was like yeah that's a buck (laughs) better you know it's at least a four point so i'm gonna do this and took the shot and walked up on it and was just like i was like man those are some weird sticks he's lying in and walked up on that thing and i actually like i i've been such an elk freak for so long that it wasn't until like i showed other people the photo that they're like dude you need to go get that thing looked at because it's a monster it's a monster and sure enough yeah like i got a my cousin lives in Steamboat, and I was over there during the winter for a ski comp with the kids that I coach, and I went and ate dinner with him, and he's a big elk hunter, and he's he's done some work with, like, Steven Ranella and those guys with Meat Eater, and he had this picture that a buddy of mine had taken with the buck that I didn't even have this picture, and he's like, yeah, I got this set to me, like, Totally it's your buck? roundabout. Yeah, it's me holding my buck, but I hadn't even seen the picture yet. <laughs> and so it went through the 
Air, went through the rounds. Waves, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a monster. Yeah. I mean, you'll probably go your whole life and never even see a buck that big. I yeah. mean, all of us will. That thing's a giant. <laughs> did it spark? So being a mule or a elk nut, did it in any way spark like, oh, man, the, you know, did it spark a mule deer passion at all, you think? Yeah, for sure. All of a sudden, I mean, I'd always loved mule deer and. I, uh, my dad definitely shot some really nice bucks, like just at, at like the 200 210 mark when I was little. And, um, so I'd always had that in me, but I was just so focused on that elk archery. But after this guy, I, you know, kind of started researching mule deer a little more and they're, they're cool critters. That's cool. And really you guys, cool. uh, drew, drew some tags this year, third yep. season. So you get a yep. chance, a little redemption to go. See if you can find another big one, huh? Yeah. So will you, going into the hunt, I mean, it's a third season tag. Where are you at in your mule deer hunting as far as shooting a big one like that? I mean, are you going to be selective or are you just going to go buck hunting and shoot a buck? Or, you know, are you going to look for something specific, you know, wide, big, tall, you know, whatever? Or what's, what's your thoughts? I think I'm, I mean anything that has you know four points on each side and yeah solid buck yeah d decent buck yeah you know who's shooting first i don't know we gotta see i think, I think, <laughs> I think trevor draws, is draws depends on who goes <laughs> yeah i'd say if he shot that buck you're always shooting <laughs> yeah, first. probably right <laughs> yeah can i quote you on that yeah exactly yeah <laughs> so you guys have mule deer tags um what about spring turkey hunting? You guys do much of the spring turkey hunts? You get into that at all? Yeah, yeah, it's a fun yeah. time. There's quite a few turkey around here. Yeah, everything in this valley is is draw pretty yeah. much. So we usually, if you don't draw anything, you got to get out Travel. of here a little bit. Yeah, but I mean, it's nothing super far, and it's always fun to just go camp out and yeah. You know, you, you've been skiing and working all winter and kind of missing hunting and like we said right when that season changes and you're kind of ready to switch gears it's a great way you guys shed hunters too yeah yeah you think that is that something that you've always done or or have you gotten more and more into it yeah i've, I've definitely gotten more and more into it um he's being humble right now yeah He's a shed junkie. I know. <laughs> he's like, oh, he knows I've where seen they his are. Instagram all winter. He's like, yeah, I know where he's been all winter. Like, <laughs> so do you do you isolate and try and pick out certain? Now, are you shed hunting for elk or mule deer or both? Both. Yeah, okay. just whatever. I do you try and kind of watch them and kind of figure out where they're at so you kind of know where to look? I do. Yeah, I definitely scout and and look. It's not as. I mean, it definitely is for shed hunting, but it's at the same time, it's just. I just love looking at elk. Mm -hmm. And so I love just getting out there in the evenings and seeing where they are and just kind of getting the whole scope of their migration and where they are different times of year. Was it different this year with all of the snow? Did it, did it change their patterns where you had to look in different spots or not necessarily? I mean, I thought they were going to be, a, they definitely were lower. Like last year I was finding, antlers in places that I've you know were super high and more near the snow line but this year they were a little lower but I mean it takes a lot for a, a big bull or you know the cows are usually in the same spot right 
Um, it takes a lot for a big bull to move out. And, you know, they're usually on those south-facing hillsides. And if it snows two feet, that snow's melted within, you know, a week, even on a big snow year like this. As far as shed hunting, is it kind of seasonal as well? Or do you shed hunt, you continue to shed hunt all the way into the summer? Um, yeah, it's seasonal. I mean, it's, um, you know, May deal now. So you're May trying to, to find brown sheds. You're trying to find. I'm trying to just find whatever. Whatever. Yeah. Whites, browns. Um, get, you know, it's good fitness. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then, I mean, it, fishing season hits and all of a sudden I'm on the river every day for the next three months. So I don't really have the time. As far as guiding on the river, um, you primarily guide on the Roaring Fork float fishing or are you doing tons of wade fishing or what? Um, yeah, so this is this will be my third season as a float guide. Um, I started out doing wade trips for the first, what, 10, 12 years. And I finally decided to buy a drift boat and got all my certifications. And I'm, I'm glad I did. It's a real It's a real fun way to fish and just... You know, if the fishing's bad, at least you're floating down a river. Yeah. You get to look at the wildlife. and It's hard to kind of go on yeah. wade trips where you're standing in the same hole and the fishing isn't very good. Yeah, especially when you have a boring client and you can't, <laughs> can't learn about anything else to talk about. And he's casting up in the trees <laughs> every yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. back casting. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you just put on, like, the no-hook fly. And <laughs> 3X. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder why I'm not catching anything. Yeah. Just set it harder, dude. <laughs> So I'm going to put you guys on the spot. Um, favorite fly to fish on the Roaring Fork? I'm not even going to give you a season or anything. Just favorite fly to fish on the Roaring Fork. I don't know. There's so many. I like skating caddis early. That's what I was going to say. It's yeah. pretty fun. Caddis mm-hmm. stimulator. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just skate it, and they they hit it Slam like it's em. a streamer. And Come. it's usually like when you're coming out of winter and you haven't nothing's been hitting on top and kind of start getting that bug again do you um and speaking about skating caddis are you talking the mother mother's day caddis the spring caddis are you talking about summertime caddis yeah more summertime um i mean you can do it the same on during the mother's day hatch but those bigger those bigger caddis that really kind of skate come out later in the summer and typically going with a tan caddis or green or what what kind of color are you going with doesn't really matter when you're yeah. skating it. Yeah. Just a stemmy with yeah. something smaller behind it, an elk hair or something. Yeah, just so like peacock caddis. Yeah, that's a good yeah, one. That's a little a peacock. One. Yeah. Body. Floating, cast down, letting it dead drift, but then just kind of lifting the rod tip and giving yeah. it a little jitter. You just give it make sure it's juiced up real good with a float on it. Um, just so it it has plenty of buoyancy and then yeah, you just kinda jitter it along and I mean, if you watch caddis, you can see them. They just kind of bounce along the surface of the river when they're dropping down and laying their eggs. Yeah, we're soaking them like every three or four casts. You're yeah. like yeah. re-soaking them. We're using dry shake too, or just soaking yeah, them? Yeah, the liquid stuff. Is, yeah. yeah, what is that? The, yeah, uh, like the secret. The Flyagra. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's the secret. <laughs> um, I hear some guys dip them in uh, lighter fluid. Yeah, like kerosene Yeah, works well. Um, yeah, there's bunch of stuff out there these days definitely don't drink it yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's expensive what about stre- yeah. <laughs> streamer fishing in the valley if you had to pick a color what color would you would you fish i've had a lot of success with white 
I was going to say green or black. <laughs> <laughs> Do you notice white on sunny days or yeah, white on cloudy or what? I think dark, you go darker on a cloudy day and light on a sunny day. Yeah. Um, I've got this, it's just this little articulated, it's like a double woolly bugger in white with some flash some on it. But just like, and you, you kind of fish it the same way that you fish a caddis when you're skating it, just like that jitter jitter and then strip and then. Yeah, it's just hit the bank. And it's just like the fish Three look at strips. it, and you can tell they're just like, ah. They have nothing to do but that. hit it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they know they're supposed to eat it. Yeah. <laughs> Streamer fishing, one of the things I like about it is it's real active, and you usually see the fish take, especially if you're using a white streamer where you can see it. I like fishing white. Um but I like catching browns, too. I yeah. love watching <laughs> them come off the bank. It seems like, I don't know about you guys, but. Most of the streamer action is like within six, eight feet of the bank. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Especially on the fork here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so you're just getting shot after shot after shot going down the fork. Yeah, your arm, if your arm isn't tired. <laughs> you're yeah. doing it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about on the pan? Uh, if you had to pick a favorite fly, what would you say is just the, you know, go-to? I mean, the go-to is size twenty pheasant tail black. Or regular. Regular, if it's not working, you take a Sharpie and make yeah, it black. Yeah. yeah. You hear that a lot. Um, the frying pan obviously is known for big green drake hatches, but mm -hmm. it also has pretty amazing PMD hatches, right? I think that's probably the m most prolific hatch on yeah. that river right now. Yeah. yeah. And the, the Roaring Fork obviously is known for mega caddis hatches. Yeah. Green drake hatches. Um, and then we get the PMDs as well on the fork, which is fun. Yeah. But the water, it seems a little bit more choppy, especially the higher up you go. Mm -hmm. So you got to be pretty precise in your cast and stuff. And plus those PMDs, you know, they're pretty dainty little flies. Um, so it gets a little finicky. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Yeah. With those, with those smaller PMDs, you're looking more for like the little pockets and when those bugs are actually hatching, but you know, a big caddis you can throw out into the middle, into the chop and you Skate get a fish it. come up from the bottom and yeah, yeah, definitely nail it's it. Caught like, them on weird, like just, just red hackle on a hook too, like weird stuff like that. Yeah. Um, on a year like this with big water, the fork's going to fish a lot later. I mean, it'll float a lot later in the year. Would you agree? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. And, there's times when, like last year, the water, the snow was so bad that, like, literally, like, the 15th of July, I mean, floating was, I mean, the water temps were high. Normally, in this valley, we don't get, like, stop fishing midday, but I remember last year, there was a lot of, you know, no more fishing afternoon, and yep. this year, it might not ever happen, right, water temperature? No, this year, it should be good to go. Um, yeah, we were calling last year the bummer summer of 2018, because low water and then we had that fire yeah. in uh basalt that just kind of really put a damper on the whole yeah. situation but yeah we were we were stopping all fishing from carbondale down at two yeah flies out which um, is great for the fish because i mean yeah really good yeah um i think it's once that water hits 70 yeah. it just takes so much more time for those fish to revive and if you don't really spend time with them and the pro the big problem that we were seeing was that drake hatch you know on on the roaring fork it's more it's an evening hatch and you're basically fishing into the dark 
and that's when the water temperature was actually the highest. Right. And so, you know, you're fighting fish in the dark and you might just, you know, be hasty with your release. And we were seeing a lot of fish kill like the next day after that. And so it was cool to see the community kind of come together and actually really like focus on the health of the river and, and follow the, the, and kind of police and kind of see the community kind of police it where I think there was some people that probably didn't know. I mean, honestly didn't. Yeah. There was some that probably abused it, but I saw people like, Hey, we're not fishing after two. What? Yeah. And telling them and then like, Oh, okay, cool. I didn't know. Exactly. Yeah. Let them know what, what's going on. And yeah, people were pretty receptive to that situation. Right on. So we're, we're sitting at uh, June 13th. What do you think uh, as far as floating the fork and kind of start fishing? I mean, do you think it's going to be a full month from now, or do you think around 4th of July we'll be able to start nymphing and streamers and some of that? Yeah, I think the I think the peak should be right around the end of June. And then, you know, once it hits that peak and drops down, you're gonna the water's going to start clearing up every day. Yeah. And... I mean, once that water clears up, we're floating and, and wait, waiting the fork. And it's going to be, I think it's going to be a great summer after we hit that hit that peak. And right now, just get the kayak out and go whitewater rafting or you something. You guys do quite a bit of that? <laughs> um, a little. We used to a lot more, but. Yeah. <laughs> it's too scary now. <laughs> Man, do you, I mean, I'm sure you've done Slaughterhouse Falls in your sleep, right? Over yeah, the- I one of my first jobs summer jobs here was a safety kayaker for blazing adventures okay and so i'd just follow all the rafters down and when rafts flip i would i was basically a swim coach like yeah. a glorified swim coach like swim that way <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i definitely had to pull a few people out of the, the river i like to go and just sit there and watch them come down right yeah. there <laughs> and come off that little drop and watch people bounce out of the boat yeah so you were the guy that was like all right get yeah, back in get back in definitely a lot of grab the tail of my kayak yeah don't the grab tail. The they, they try to grab the side and like <laughs> flip you i like i tell you them gotta punch them don't you because oh, you yeah. don't want to go over the safety speech was like if you put your hands on the side of my boat i'm gonna knuckle you yeah and i yeah i definitely would cross check people in the helmet <laughs> <laughs> did you play hockey too a little bit yeah I, that's I'm, where the cross checking comes in yeah <laughs> he was more he's trevor's definitely more of a hockey player than yeah. i am but Coming from back east, I mean, yep. hockey's I big here, but, I mean, coming from back east, it's huge there. Yeah, and I went to Colorado College. I played hockey there Okay. on the club team. We were, when I was there, we made it to the Frozen Four one year, and it Good was for real you. big. But, um, yeah, hockey's alive and well in this valley as well. A lot for of sure. men's league and stuff. For sure. That's awesome. Well, guys, it's been awesome having you on the podcast. I really appreciate you guys taking your time to – share some of the stuff about the valley and share some of your own lives and what you guys got going look forward to having you guys on again and um, nice to meet new friends in the valley i've been following will for years and just thought it'd be a great thing to get get some locals on and talk a little bit about the valley so um just want to just thank you for for your time yeah thanks jay thank you yeah Yeah. let's go fishing yeah Yeah. let's do it for (laughs) sure and um you know looking over there at that buck um good luck on your archery elk hunts and your mule deer hunts coming up i look forward to watching your success and uh it's cool it's good to meet new guys in the valley for sure yeah definitely right yeah. on.